For as long as I've known the NBA, it's been a stars league. But even among the stars, there's an exclusive club. Russell, Dr. J, Jordan, Kobe. They're all part of a select group that paved the way for the NBA superstar of today. And some even shared secrets with each other along the way. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Jackie McMullen, and this is the Icons Club. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Hello and welcome to Group Chat and the boys are back in town. I am Justin Barrier, Big Wise, Rob Mahoney, the full crew is here. You know, there are a lot of great artists that have podcasted together over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing quite like this group, though. Nothing. That's true. Waz, how you feeling to have everybody back? Oh, it's amazing, man. It's it's almost like that. It's like when your favorite rock band gets back together inevitably because they need to put a new pool in their crib. <laughs> so that's what this feels like. Reunion tour. Let's go. There you go. Yeah, we're already on the back end of our careers is what that suggests to me. Um, but today we are going to reset a little bit because we have only a month, a month left in this glorious NBA season uh, before we hit the play and then the playoffs. So uh, we're going to look into the five, count them five and maybe a couple other more things that need sorting out in the remaining month of the NBA season. Let's start with the big news from last night. Our guy Kyrie going for 60 points uh, against a deflated, oh, let's call them Orlando Magic team. Uh, I believe that's four straight for the Brooklyn Nets, three of which were on the road, coincidentally. Um, But Kyrie is on a bit of a heater right now. And KD, too, if you want to throw the Knicks uh, performance in there as well and the Celtics game. Um, So, Waz, I ask you, do the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, become the favorites if they figure out the Vax mandates? Yeah, I don't think anybody in the Eastern Conference has separated themselves in any meaningful way, right? I think we all have a lot of respect for Miami and what they've done this season, even with all the injuries. We have a lot of respect for the Bucks for having won the championship last year, and they do have their big three back despite them really missing Brooke Lopez. And I think Sixers fans were really excited about the Harden ordeal, which we'll get into. But, you know, you got to respect the talent level that's over there. But nobody is head and shoulders above anything in the East. And most people would say that the Nets still have the best player in the conference in Kevin Durant. And, you know, Steve Nash has said uh, Ben Simmons will be coming back soon, sooner rather than later. And so if they have their full complement of players and KD is relatively healthy and so is Kyrie and, you know, uh, the vaccine stuff won't it, um, prohibit him from playing at Barclays Center. I don't see how you can make, you know, some forceful argument that they're not right there as the favorites to come out of the East. Well, did Steve Nash say that Ben Simmons will come back? Because what I heard is he has extremely high hopes Yeah, that Ben Simmons will come <laughs> back, which I have extremely high hopes for so many things, Justin. I don't know about you, um, including Ben Simmons coming back. I would love to see that version of this team. But I think realistically, we have to at least kind of plan for the possibility Mm. that maybe Simmons isn't a huge part of whatever their playoff picture looks like. 
Yeah, I think that's my question. Do they even need Ben Simmons to complete this title picture for them? Because honestly, like you get Ben Simmons there, obviously he's going to have a lot of impact on the defensive end. But like then you factor in the fact that he hasn't been playing all regular season and like what he needs to ramp up. And also like do the free throws become an issue? Do guys, do teams send them to the line? And does that just gunk up everything the Nets are doing? Um, I was looking back to game seven against the Bucks last year. And here's the lineup that they put out there that nearly, just nearly beat the eventual NBA champions. James Harden with one hamstring, Bruce Brown, Joe Harris, Blake Griffin, Kevin Durant with Jeff Green, Nicholas Claxton, and Landry Shaman off the bench. Last night against the Magic, they start Kyrie Irving, Goran Dragic, Bruce Brown again, KD, Andre Drummond with Patty Mills, Seth Curry, Kessler Edlers, Nick Claxton off the bench. That seems like a much better team than the one that they almost knocked off the champs with. So I wonder, like, is this enough on itself without Ben Simmons was in order to compete for a title? Yeah, I think it's enough to compete for sure. Um, but I just think they lack a certain level of, you know, just dynamic offense outside of what KD and Kyrie can do in the shot making realm. Because, you know, we watched Kyrie like all of that shit last night was just shot making. The kind of mm. stuff that you absolutely need in the playoffs, but the kind of stuff you also don't want to solely subsist on in your offensive ecosystem for it to thrive, right? So, like, yes, it's it's a blessing that they have two of the best shot creators, shot makers in the league. Two of the best that the league has ever seen, by the way, um, on their roster. But I think they're missing just a little bit more oomph outside of that stuff without Ben Simmons to create, you know, secondary stuff, attacking closeouts and transitions, the kind of buckets that you need, you know, to prop up your offense against the best defenses in the playoffs. So I think they can compete, but I don't, you know, I just, I really do think they need some of what Simmons brings in the garbage stuff, you know, the stuff that it doesn't mm -hmm. come from exquisite, precisely executed offensive play. It's the stuff where, you know, putbacks and, dunks after a steal and those kind of things, duck-ins, like those kind of things um, is what I think they're missing. Yeah, until Simmons is a full go, I, that's what makes Bruce Brown pretty essential for a lot of their lineups, especially their closing lineups. He's the closest thing they have to that kind of garbage pail, defender, mm -hmm. effort, rebounder, cutter mm -hmm. that they're going to need. And if Ben Simmons is an even bigger version of that with more playmaking and even better defense and more versatile, that could be awesome for them. In the meantime, I guess Bruce Brown will have to do, and he's done a pretty adequate job despite the fact that, you know, their perimeter lineups are very small. It's a lot of, you know, Irving and Mills and Curry and Brown, or, you know, you know, like putting Brown in for one of those three guys. Um, and, you know, you have Dragic in that mix too. There's just a lot they have to compensate for on the perimeter right now without Simmons. So like that's a pressure point in a potential playoff series for sure. Now, if Kyrie Irving is playing the kind of defense he did against Philly for entire playoff <laughs> rounds and he's able to play in those full playoff rounds, maybe that's a different question. It's just, you know, the stuff with Kyrie is always so complicated and, and, and Zach Lowe rightly brought up on his podcast that that performance was like one of the four games, one of every four games that Kyrie will <laughs> actually try on defense, which I guess in this season means one of every eight games because he's only playing <laughs> half of them to begin with. So that's a bit of a tough sell, but I... I really do wish we were at a point in the season where we could just more wholeheartedly and straightforwardly appreciate what Kyrie is doing because when he has played, he's been pretty sensational. And it's not yeah. just the 60-point games. I mean, that game against the Sixers, that's as good as it gets in terms of a regular season big moment showing up in every capacity that your team needs you to. And that's a good case. You know, if, if he can if he can get cleared and and ready to play for a full playoff series, that version of the Nets is going to be very hard to beat. Well, Rob, you only need four in the playoffs. So if they get four defensive games from Kyrie, that's that's a win in the series. But no, yeah, I, I think you make a good point. But like of late, he just seems to be playing with more of a purpose. And it does feel like whatever happened with Harden, whatever is happening with the Vax mandates has galvanized his entire team. And in particular, Kevin Durant and and Kyrie Irving to play on another level. And now let's pause and reflect and, and point out that this all is happening because of Kyrie. He caused yes. all of these problems, but in some weird convoluted, nobody believes in a sort of way they're using this now as motivation to take it out on the Sixers and some of these other teams to show them like what they can do. And like, 
if it works for you, I guess like it's going to produce results. Uh, I don't understand how we got to this point, but the Nets are, it feels like, playing with, with more oomph to them than they had previously. You know, every team is always trying to manufacture its own nobody-believes-in-us mentality. Mm-hmm. This, this is some next-level shit from, from yeah. Kyrie to go to these this extent just to make it seem like the world is against the Nets when it's uh, Kyrie is against the Nets. Right, mm. and because and it, it does bear mentioning, right? Like, I do, as stupid as I think the rules are at this point, um, and they make, it, it kind of makes no sense what we're allowing and disallowing at this point. Um, this was caused by one guy's decision to go against the grain and be a rebel or principled or whatever the fuck we're calling it. Uh, th- like, he made this choice. He was like, I'm not doing it. Um, and he stood on it and he said, fuck my teammates. Um, fuck the product that we're supposed to be putting on as partners with the league. Um, fuck all of that. I'm not doing it because I don't want to. And so these are the results of it. Yeah, it's real Phil Jackson level manipulation of, of the narrative here and his own teammates. So I, I guess it's working from now, but uh, let's flip to the Sixers. Now the other team, I guess on the end of this trade and um, at the forefront of this big Eastern conference race here, uh, things have been a little bit more mixed than they were to start with. Uh, you know, they lost to the, to the nets obviously in pretty, uh, disastrous fashion. And then, uh, they lost to the nuggets earlier in the week, a better game, but still revealed some of the flaws there was, I, I could see you just licking your chops here. Um, <laughs> so let me just kick this to you. Can the Sixers figure out whatever needs figuring out in time to really be at the top of the East when all things are said and done? You know, when you ask if the Sixers can figure it out, I feel like a lot of it is, can Doc figure it out? Um, and as of recent, the answer would be no. The answer uh, is playing DeAndre Jordan too long, which is another problem. <laughs> again, when it comes to Doc Rivers, he has not been the most flexible of coaches, right? Like, he's been somebody who's like... This is what I like. This is what I prefer. And so this is what I'm going to do as far, especially when it comes to lineups and rotations. Uh, I Look, I don't know. He's had an aversion of like, for instance, he has an aversion of playing Danny Green with Tybal at the same time. For whatever reason, he just thinks this is something that he's not allowed to do or can't do. Um, they haven't figured out the maxi thing since James Harden got there. He's basically become a non-entity, especially late in games, since Harden has gotten there. And, you know, the whole point of keeping Maxi and being like, oh, he's this asset or whatever, is that you're going to use him, that he's allegedly, like, really good right now. And, look, I go back to the bubble where they completely went down in flames against the Denver Nuggets, a team that they were supposed to manhandle and we basically, yeah. yeah, the Clippers, sorry. And we basically blamed the entire ordeal on Montrez Harrell. Uh, at no point did Doc switch up what he was doing. Where I was I was one of those people that was like, look, y'all not guarding Jokic anyway. Why not go small? Why not make them uncomfortable? Why, th- why not spread them out? Why not try, why not try something <laughs> different? Uh, and Doc has refused to do it. So when I, when you, when I hear you ask, will they figure it out? It's... Will Doc stop being stubborn and stop and stop basically running things in the ground that just are obviously demonstratively not working? And Mm. um, there's been no evidence of his willingness to do so in recent history. I never thought I would look longingly on the days when uh, Paul Millsap was the Sixers' backup center. (laughs) Right. But then I see DeAndre Jordan out there and... I ask this in all honesty, like, what is he supposed to offer them? What is he supposed to be doing? Because he's not doing it. He doesn't box out. He's, he got beat on a back cut from the top of the key by Nikola Jokic. Mm. I don't know what to tell you. Like, that guy should not be in the game. I, I would be, I'd be more comfortable with roll Millsap out there, put Paul Reed at center. I'm, I'm 100% serious. I would be more comfortable with that than DeAndre Jordan at backup five. That's not working. And if you're going to play that guy extended minutes, it's really not going to work. The Sixers saw that he wasn't playing for the Lakers and like, we need that. <laughs> we need the guy that can't crack one of the worst rotations in basketball right but, now. By the way, one of the worst rotations and who sorely need a big, right? Like, I, I yeah. was at the game the other night against Toronto where they, Toronto just like, 
layup line after layup line after layup line, or they just straight up back down Malik Monk. Like, like they were just like, these guys are too small to deal with us. We're going to bully them. That's the team that told DeAndre Jordan, who's one of the biggest guys in the fucking league, to pack his bags and get the hell out. So, and the Sixers was like, yeah, 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 that's, that's what we want. And that's mm-hmm. who we're going to give heavy minutes to. Well, so I think this starts with Doc. I do agree with that. His stubbornness, what he's committed to, what he's willing to do, that's going to be under the microscope all postseason. But once the guys get on the floor, there is the question of, can they find ways to engage Matisse Thibel to make him something offensively? And if you can't, you can't really stretch his minutes that far. And if you can't stretch his minutes that far, you're going to get a lot of James Harden and Tyrese Maxey getting picked on defensively because, Waz, I disagree with you a little bit. And I think that Maxey's been pretty good offensively, but he's been really bad on defense. He, yeah. Yeah, he hasn't been able to guard anybody. And it's a lot of like, hands up, where was my rotation? Where was my help? And it's like, if you're not diverting yeah. them into the right places or giving any kind of resistance, you're just not going to get that kind of help. Yeah, I think I think I'm just going with the recency bias, obviously, of the loss of the Nuggets the other night, who shouts to my guy Ben Golliver, who was on the show, uh, was on weekends on Sunday, and he pointed out that look like Joel never gets any of the blame. It's always somebody else's fault. And you know, like, look, like he got outplayed down the stretch of that game. And down the stretch of the game, it was like very heavily James Harden and Maxi was not involved last five minutes. He wasn't involved in OT. He just wasn't. And I'm just like, in tight moments, if it's just going to be this James Harden show, the savior, (laughs) the validator, if if it's just going to be that, um, I don't think that's going to work because I don't think James Harden is that type of guy anymore. The heavy usage at the end of games, carry people down the stretch. They're going to have to figure out how to come up with some other way to manufacture quality looks than James Harden dribble, dribble, dribble. Yeah, I wonder if the Maxi Thibel, Green issues are all related, right? What is the perfect combination hmm. in order to supplement what Harden and Embiid are now doing? Like, Maxi's going to give you a little offensive juice, but as Rob alluded to, the defense has not been good, including, like, dying on every possible scene uh, screen against the Nets, and the Nets took full advantage of that, right? Um, but I... Like green probably matters a little bit more to this team than he should at this point in his career. And he's not giving you much on offense, especially after uh, this finger injury that he had. Maybe that's what's causing him not to shoot as well and why they had to close with George Niang as opposed to green in that game against the Nuggets. Uh, But like, which wasn't great. Which wasn't great. Like, I swear to God, like, I, I must have seen every bad game that Jordan Yang ever played with Utah, but he would always just be awful. And I'm like, why do guys even like him? But the stats say otherwise. So it must just be a me thing. Um, but like, it is, I don't it know is what a you the, thing. How yeah, dare yeah. you? Yeah, you would love this guy. Just a, just a bowling ball that shoots threes. That's, that's your, that's your vibe. What's not to like, <laughs> but I, I don't know what the perfect combination is. And, and that's what kind of brings me to Tobias Harris as maybe a source of maybe the most consternation. It's like, you're also making a max contract. Why aren't you giving more than like 10 to 14 points a game and like some stretch and not enough defense? Like how nice would it be to, to run like a small ball lineup where he's picking and popping with James Harden. And that is like maybe your secondary offense when Embiid is off the floor, right? You just turn to that and that's your, I just like, you're not getting enough from these other guys. And I don't really know what the combination is this season right now in order to make them on the level of a Nets or even a Bucks or even a Heat. And and again, not to beat this like a dead horse, what makes your pick and roll most dangerous is when the other team is deathly afraid of switching. Tobias Harris pick and roll with James Harden. I can guard either one of you guys with the same dude no matter what. Like, straight up. James Harden is not slicing and dicing people um, in isolation anymore. He's just not. Go watch the Sixers games. Go look at at his isolation stats. He used to be... Remember, Daryl Morey used to brag about this shit all the time. He's the best isolation player in the league. The numbers bear it out. Look at his points (laughs) per possession. Best isolation. Blah, 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 blah. I think it was not the league. It was in NBA history, history was the claim. Right, he's the best offensive player in NBA history. All of this shit, all of this shit we used to hear from his buddy. Um, go look at those stats right now. That ain't the case. And Tobias Harris, again, he's not going to bully a smaller wing. 
And he's absolutely not just cooking bigger guys off of the dribble with his, you know, his blinding first step. And so go ahead, run your pick and rolls with Tobias Harris and James Harden. I'm switching it. And I'm beating that freaking action every single time. So, yeah, they got big problems. And I don't know that they have the pieces to solve it because, again, it's not as if we talked about Doc's stubbornness. James Harden, it's not as if he's ever switched up how he wants to play. He's not going to come in here and become some great off-ball threat. Like, when he gives up the ball, he's going to be moving off the screens and, you know, creating diversions and forcing people to respect his gravity as a shooter and a penetrator. And He ain't doing that. He's mm. giving up the rock, and he's going to stand 30 feet away with his hands on his hips. So the people that you need to step up and figure something out differently have not demonstrated that they're willing to do so. In our recent past. And maybe they find a light, JV, you know, um, for the believers in the audience. Maybe you got to have faith sometimes. Maybe they'll find the light and, and make some adjustments. But I don't know why you would be optimistic of that. But that's why the key part here is, do they have enough time? Because mm. even if they are going to solve those things hypothetically, doing it on the fly in the final stages <laughs> of the regular season, it's hard. You know, like what they're asking Matisse Thibel to do offensively now, a guy who has stood in the corner basically his entire career to this point. Now he's screening for Harden. He's like, a, you know, in the middle of the floor as a connector, trying to make passes between guys. Sometimes that stuff goes really well. Sometimes it doesn't. Tobias Harris now has to be like the ultimate gear shift player for them, where as, as we're saying, Justin, when Embiid or Harden are out of the game, he has to be a much more involved offensive player. And when they're in the game, especially with Maxi. He basically has to stand on the wing and, and stretch the floor and shoot quickly and make very quick decisions to just totally different modes of operation. And like, so balancing, you know, toggling between those things in the flow of games, in the flow of a season, when a guy like Harden has not been there, it's challenging. Like this is hard stuff to just pick up on the fly against, you know, and potentially against the, the most competitive teams in the Eastern Conference in the playoffs. Can't yeah, wait to see at- it. If we're already at blind faith, if we're already going to the Sunday sessions being like, please save us, I think we're in a bad spot for the Sixers. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, let's 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 flip now to a much more cheery situation with the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, this bleak. is fucking brutal. It's bleak. It's so bleak. Like, I get the schadenfreude of it all and the rubbernecking and for all the other franchises and fans that have had to endure the Lakers over the past however many decades, but I can't watch this team anymore. It is just the saddest thing on the planet to watch a team just waste a very good LeBron James year and then to watch LeBron James live a separate life (laughs) when he's on Instagram 
Like just doubting his accomplishments when they're just getting blown the fuck off the floor. Like, holy shit, this is this is really, really bad. And I can't watch this anymore. Let a guy live. Let him have his healthy work-life boundaries, you know? I just can't take it when he's like yelling at people to get a rebound. Yeah. And then he's like yeah. signing the basketball because he just he he passed some <laughs> arbitrary like accomplishment. And it's just like whatever. I, I don't know. I feel like my, I'm definitely getting older because I remember at the thick of like the heat situation, I was like, get out of here. LeBron deserves to do whatever he wants and you leave him alone. And now I'm like, fuck this guy. Like, what is he doing? Here's the thing. It's, it's LeBron's fault that the team looks the way that it does. 100% he bears responsibility in the construction of this roster because Every time I watch them be unable to keep any freaking ball handler in front, get completely manhandled by every single wing with even the most decent amount of size, and layup lines to the basket, I'm reminded that they got rid of their three best perimeter defenders voluntarily. They didn't lose them in free age. Well, Caruso they did, but just by being cheap. Mm -hmm. Um... They gave KCP away. They gave Kuzma away. They let Caruso walk for an extremely fair deal, right? Like, they, like they, they put themselves in this position. However, at the same time, I was at Staples, when was that, Tuesday? Mm -hmm. And LeBron is playing at a level that is so far past everybody else on his team like what? Like what am I really? Like he's playing extremely well, but the people who are supposed to be supplementing that um, great play, stinking up the joint, and he absolutely waved, rolled the red carpet out for them to walk into this situation. So it's like he's getting what he deserves at the end of the day. Yeah, there's a real like Aesop's fable quality to all of this. I feel like there's a lesson in here in the, what the Lakers have built for themselves. I have I, what I have a hard time parsing is like how fussy I should be getting about LeBron not getting back on defense, not boxing out, not trying on rebounds. Cause I mean, it's gotten egregious. The clips have made the social media <laughs> rounds at this point. It's all Just very much there. LeBron's social media. Yeah. No, no. Everyone else's social media. It's all very much there. Inarguable. But if you're the only guy doing anything offensively, if you're the only guy who's, you know, you've, you've played center for large stretches of this season because your team didn't have anyone to play, you did everything in those capacities and your team still stunk, I, I empathize a little bit with the feeling of where he finds himself now of looking into the abyss and feeling his soul slowly leaving his body and think, oh, well, isn't it great that I reached this milestone of career points Take what take what joys you can from life, LeBron is what Rob, I'm saying. Because Rob, there was a there was a layup that Westbrook <laughs> shot in that Toronto game that looked more like a shot put than a layup. He was two feet from the basket, and with his left hand, he just shot put it at the freaking backboard. Didn't touch rim on a layup. Your forty-five million dollar man did that in a professional NBA game. It's Terrible. And mm. the Raptors, you could, they, first of all, they started the game 21 to 2, right? Like 21 to 2. The Lakers scored 12 points in the first quarter. The Raptors only shot layups and not just threes, wide open threes because help had to come or it was a loose ball where the Lakers couldn't get to corral the defensive rebound. They just, Beat them up, bloodied them, and bludgeoned them. And there was points where, like, a rookie, Scotty Barnes, was just like, I'm more physical than everybody on this team. If I don't have LeBron on me, I'm putting whoever's guarding me underneath the fucking rim. And he kept doing that. Then Precious Achua was doing it. Then, like, it was just like, this is, this is just bleak. It's so bad. They are so bad defensively in every single aspect. They can't keep guys in front. They get muscled at the rim. They can't corral rebounds. Like, all three phases of defense stink. Losing guys on cuts. 
like not seeing man and ball, like everything that you've learned about defense when you were a freaking six years old, you know, at Luke a second camp. <laughs> These guys do none of it. It's it's so bad, man. It's so fucking bad. Well, I know we're trying to figure out like the big questions that need to be sorted here. <laughs> um my only question is like, if you're already in Los Angeles, do you do one, two, three Cancun, or is that just not necessary? <laughs> it's assumed. It's yeah. assumed, or at least Cabo. Yeah, one, two, three Cabo might work better. You know, I always question myself when I put the like Lakers on the budget. I'm like, how much more can we talk about this team? And then we get into it, and I'm like, this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> you're a sick I'm enjoying man. myself more. Yeah. No. So the so the big question, I guess, if if you really want to dig into it, is can the Lakers ultimately just fall ass backwards out of the play and altogether. They're currently what two and a half up on the trailblazers who despite it all, despite the fact that they do not want to win a single game for the rest of the season are still in the thick of this thick of this mighty play in race. Uh, the Pelicans haven't had CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram for recent games, although CJ came back last night. So they've been losing a little bit lately. The Spurs and the Kings are on their heels. The Kings with De'Aaron Fox putting up like 30 and 40 every night and like no one just gives a shit because of the Kings. I guess the question, Rob, like, do you see a world where the Lakers actually don't make the play on play in where LeBron is just like in such fuck it mode that he wants to do the Kobe not passing the ball style where he's just like, you know what? We're going to we're going to completely bottom out. And this is how I prove my point. I can't imagine it. I yeah. If one of these teams were better. You know, if the if the Blazers were a little bit better, maybe I could see the possibility. But Portland's three and seven over its last 10. Not much better than the Lakers, frankly. So how they're (laughs) going to make up the ground here, I don't see when one of these teams has LeBron James, even though that team is awful. I I don't think it's going to happen, but I do think it is incredibly realistic that they are going to get into that playing game and just get promptly bounced the hell out of there by the Pelicans. I think that is increasingly very realistic. Yeah. I, do the play-in stats count for the playoffs? Have we figured this out? I think it's in its own No, yeah, it lives, zone. It lives yeah. it's in um, purgatory. Oh. Yeah. yeah. There's no reason for LeBron to get to the playoffs then. That was that was the best part of the Laker Raptors game was the blatant stat padding that LeBron was doing. He's just like, look, all I'm playing for is the scoring title at this point. <laughs> and he was clearly all he cared about was scoring 30. He's like, let me get to 30, keep pace with Joel. All this other shit, I can give a fuck about. It, it was so obvious. It was so fun to watch. Let me say this quickly. Like, LeBron isn't the issue. It no. is just, like, wild sometimes just looking at his Instagram. It's like, it's getting to the point where <laughs> it's starting to feel like Russia, where it's just like, this is not what's it's happening sta- in real state, life. It's state-run state media. media. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is propaganda, man. <sighs> oh, God. So perfect. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to the rest of the West. Uh, in, in brighter news, Rob's Minnesota Timberwolves hey. are just... On a run here, eight and two over the past 10 since the All-Star break. Best net rating in the NBA. Carl Towns also going for 60 points. Just what a lovely little story here. I think the question is now, like, how legit are the Wolves? They're they're kind of pushing, they're knocking on the door of the Nuggets and the Mavs and the Jazz in that four, five, six spot. Uh, they got what? They have 70 games, so they got 12 to go here. Rob, do you think there's a chance that the Wolves, the mighty Wolves, can not even have to worry about the play and ignore it entirely and get into the regular big boy playoffs right off the bat. I mean, that would be phenomenal for them. I think what's difficult is their schedule is pretty tough. And in particular, they have this upcoming stretch where it's Milwaukee, Dallas, Phoenix, Dallas, Boston, all in a row. That might be it right there. Well, we should know. We have a pretty good idea after that set of games, whether they're in the running for it or not. Because if they go one and four or something in that stretch, I just don't think they have enough time to get to six. But the fact that it's on the table incredible for for the wolf season for the their ability to steady themselves after you know the occasional you know minor injuries for guys little blips of a week or two where they aren't playing so well in particular their defense is back on track which has been huge but the wolves are a good team like period end of sentence and really what they've gotten really good at is just swatting away any of these lesser teams they come up against that's just always the mark of like a solid playoff team is can you just take care of business on the easy nights of the schedule and they've they've been killing those games. They've been absolutely, you know, 
really impeccable record against lesser teams. Are they going to make noise in the playoffs? I think they're a tough matchup. I think they can be an yep. interesting, in, interesting opponent, but I'm not picking them necessarily to upset anybody, I wouldn't say at this point. So the Wolves right now currently are 11th in the NBA in defensive rating. They're tied with the Jazz and directly behind Philadelphia. And so what that means is that defenses manned by Rudy Gobert and Joel Embiid basically are playing as well as one manned by Carl Anthony Towns. And I mentioned those guys because, look, as much as we love watching the little like guys stop people, keep them in front, chopping their feet. We love watching perimeter defense. The best defenses happen because your big men protect the paint. They're the most important people on that end of the floor. And if you was going to tell me that Carl Towns could man defenses, and again, it's because of the, the complimentary parts. Yeah. Jared Vanderbilt, but, all those guys. But just the idea that Carl Towns could man an above-average NBA defense that would be on par with Rudy Gobert and Joel Embiid, that makes all the freaking difference. So when it comes to a matchup problem in the playoffs, if these guys, if these guys are going to guard fools and we know the problems that they present offensively for people because when you're big, shoots out to 30, 30 feet and you can't put Patrick Beverly on them like they did to <coughs> Rudy Gobert... You know, like, it's that's a problem for teams to try to guard, right? And so, yeah, I think they could make some noise in the playoffs. And it's really cool to see the Wolves finally break through in a way like, wow, like, wow you guys have some level of competence. After, <laughs> after KG, that was like 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so right now they are two wins away from locking in their second winning season since 2005. Woo. Wow. Wild stuff. But I think, yeah. Waz, I think like you are articulating a key plank in the Carl Anthony Towns All-NBA case, which is mm -hmm. getting stronger and stronger by the day. Not only in the event that there's some like weird forward center shenanigans where Embiid or Jokic end up at forward somehow, but even if we're just going straight centers and you have Jokic and Embiid and you're looking at that third team spot and it's probably Gobert and Towns in the running for that. Give me Towns. Yeah. I mean, Towns has been been awesome offensively as you're saying equivalent not in individual performance but no. team performance defensively held up his end of the bargain in terms of yes. what that team defense is doing and supposed to be that's a pretty strong case yeah he's offensive ad at this point whereas ad is just a unicorn absolute generational defender towns is that on offense like yeah. 57 40 82 since the all-star break like he's giant steph curry and it's it's incredible to watch. And it's it's great to see them finally put together a competent team around him because this was going to get pretty dicey pretty quickly. Like the other IED comp here is like he's getting to, I believe, like the second to last year on his max mm -hmm. extension. And this is the season or the off season where you sign clutch. Right. Mm. And so if he has something <laughs> to look forward to, if he believes in a future with Anthony Edwards and yeah. D'Angelo Russell and all these parts around him, then you're less likely to call up Rich Paul and be like, hey, like, what up? What's going on this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I love that designation. You have your contract year, and then the year before it is your clutch year. That's when you got to change reps. <laughs> you got to see what's out there. Well, this question is a bit of a two-hander uh, because the teams ahead of them are also not exactly just like dying as the season goes on here. If anything, uh, well, the Jazz may be a different story, but uh, Mavericks are playing inspired basketball and the Denver Nuggets are hanging in there at sixth and they could have some reinforcements here. Jamal Murray apparently assigned to the Grand Rapids Gold. What a name. Uh, their G League team and then MPJ. Like there's less hard information there, but there has been floated by the agency that he could be back sometime in March. Um, and so I asked Rob, like, could the Nuggets just completely subvert all of our expectations for this playoffs and all of a sudden be like the most dominant team coming out of the West? I don't know about the most dominant team, but at this point, even though there's some big theoretical elements with those two guys, they're in the mix. They're in the mix to end somebody's season. You know, if you're one of these other pretty good Western Conference teams, the Nuggets could send you home early and not, not really have to stretch to do it. Like Nikola Jokic has been that good. And if either Murray or MPJ comes back and those guys are anything, 
like we don't really know what kind of form they would be in. I think that could go a long way because their perimeter rotation has been stretched so thin already. Again, any slight talent bump, I think it puts the Nuggets in a, in a pretty different class from where they are now. And they're already a really good team. You know what's so crazy is that before the Murray injuries and, of course, the MPJ injury, I felt like the Nuggets' offensive unit was the most reliable and matchup independent unit in the NBA. Meaning, mm. like, I don't care what defense you put in front of them, this team is going to generate quality looks. Doesn't matter. Outside of probably maybe the Clippers, when Kawhi is right and Paul George is right, this is the team I looked at as like, man, that unit is just so dominant and reliable and consistent and versatile in how they could attack you, right? Like, they could do the mismatch attacks. They could do the, the two-man game with Jokic and Jamal Murray where these dudes are basically like communicating telepathically is so insane to watch. And then, of course, you know, like MPJ, when he's right, he can do some really special things. So just based off of what they could do to teams offensively, you got to be worried about Murray and MPJ coming back if you're a Western Conference opponent. Of course, how long is it going to take for them to be even some semblance of what they've been at their best in terms of Jamal Murray and MPJ's performances? Who knows how long that would take for um, them to get to that place. But I always get excited about the Nuggets when they have their full complement of players because the way they attack people. And again, we know what Jokic does in the passing game, but my favorite shit is just watching him just bully guys. Yep. Like, you can't guard me one-on-one. -on -one. I'm just going to beat your ass up and I'm going to score over the top of you. Or in pick and pop, I shoot those rainbow threes over people. I just love watching them play on offense. Um, so yeah, I'll be watching that pretty closely. I think what we're zeroing in on is the difference between the Wolves and teams like the Nuggets where the Wolves are going to be a good, fun first round series. It's going to be great to see them there. Yeah. The Nuggets, they don't like, they don't stop at the first round. This is yeah, a team they that people. they advance. That's what yep. they do. No, no Murray in the lineup before MPJ really got there and popped. Doesn't really matter. And this is the best version of Nikola Jokic we've ever seen yet. I, I, like I would be, I, I would not want to be one of the top three seeds facing them in a potential first round series. That doesn't seem like a good time to me. Yeah, I think that's my question. Like, you wouldn't necessarily put them as the best, just considering the unknown with all the injuries and whatnot, and working those guys back in, right? Well, let's just say they have those two guys back and they are coming back from their injuries. Like, where are they on the danger rating? Like, if you're the Suns, are they the last team you want to face because of that firepower? Are you more scared of the Grizzlies, the Warriors with Draymond back? Where do you guys put them? Well, I think if you're the Suns specifically, You've kind of had it in your mind at various stages of the season. Like, you know what the Warriors matchup looks like. You've played it. You've seen it. You've worked through it. I feel like you probably have a good, feel like you have a good handle on it. The Grizzlies, they've at least seen in their full element. But the Nuggets, if you haven't seen Jamal Murray in a while, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that dynamic, I, I don't know that, I think the wild card element is what makes the Nuggets so interesting in, in the danger meter, per se. Mm. Like, are, are you going to give them the best odds to make it out of the West or that's championship odds. Obviously not, but they're, they're incredibly dangerous. Yeah. I, I you know, obviously I, I just still think having to deal with Steph Curry for a series has got to make people's head hurt. Migraines, stomach ulcers, like mm. that's gotta be very stressful thinking about like, all right, what do I do with Steph in a series and Kerr as a coach with his, his adjustments and you know, and we mentioned this a few group chats ago, Steve Kerr becoming flexible, you know, like willing to do things that in the past he didn't like to do, such as, you know, going to lineups that don't possess two plotting-ass bigs, right? Um, I, I just think Golden State still, because of the Steph and the Clay and the Draymond and the championship equity, probably still provides the scariest stuff for most teams. But yeah, if I'm looking at the Nuggets and... Just Jokic, just he's just on another level right now in terms of his effectiveness on an every single night too. It's not like it, like he's just he's like a metronome the way he just dominates every single night, um, just consistently. Uh, yeah, that's got to be something you worry about as well. 
but yeah, Steph, uh, Steph breaks the danger meter. Needless to say, that's not something, <laughs> not something you want to be game planning against. Don't forget about Wiseman. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> he is. He's, he's on the meter somewhere. He's a yeah. human being who exists. He's big. Yeah. He's large. For yeah. sure. Got to watch out for that. Um, speaking of young players, let's uh, briefly here uh, flip to our guy Scotty Barnes that was saw in person. The rookie of the year race is getting pretty spicy here. Uh, Evan Mobley considered the runaway favorite and might still be the clear cut favorite here, but Barnes is on a bit of a heater to end the season. Cade Cunningham also playing particularly well here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess the, the last question here we have to figure out is can, can Barnes or even Cade wise push Mobley for the rookie of the year award? The narrative avalanche kind of might've got rolling too huge for Mobley to lose it. At this point, like, there was a point in the season where he felt, like, just head and shoulders above everybody else. But if you look at the stats in the last two months or so, um, he has not been head and shoulders better than Scotty Barnes particularly, right? Like, Cade had all that time he missed for injury, and then he came back, and he wasn't immediately, like, very good at all. Um, But now you're seeing the sort of foundation of what people saw in him and what made him the first pick in the draft. When you talk about Cade, I just think Scotty Barnes, man, he's making such a compelling case. Um, And he's so integral to what the raps do. It's weird. Like, he's one of their, like, secondary ball handlers and offensive initiators. They put him on some of the best perimeter guys on defense. Like, he's already very integral to their attack and their approach. At a rookie at his age, it's kind of insane to see. And the craziest thing for me is that he was seen as this ultimate glue guy, right? Like you kept hearing the Draymond comps about what he does defensively. And, you know, he has a presence with the ball in his hands. And so, like, he has a little bit of handle and has a little pop there, has a little off the dribble game pop. But, you know, the book on him was like, he's not going to put the ball in the basket this season. That he's at the top of rookie scoring with everybody else is completely insane to me. Mm. And so for the just surprise factor, man, I'm I'm probably leaning towards Scotty Barnes, man. He's been really good. And it like I you you brought up an interesting word, Waz, which is that he's been so integral to the Raptors. And that's something I've been trying to figure out is like Evan Mobley is clearly structural for the Cavs. Like he is a yeah. big reason their defense works. What Scotty Barnes brings to the table, it's ab- it's valuable. It's definitely additive. But to me, it's like the, the improvising that's so valuable. It's like that he's the guy who can you can kick to late in the clock in the middle of a possession. He's bringing Bro, stuff to the table. He's yeah. doing things. It's like, is that a structural quality or is that a guy who's adding things to your team in a way that's helpful but not necessarily structural? I'm still trying to parse that, at least as far as what he's doing now, because long-term, there's so much to work with, yeah. with that skill set, mm-hmm. with what he brings to the table. I don't know how all the pieces are going to fit between him and Pascal and Fred Van Vliet. Like, there's some complementary aspects and some overlapping ones, but it's a it, that's where you want to be as a team, is to have guy, too many guys who can pass, shoot, and dribble and make things happen for you. And you see, the thing about it, though, when you think about overlapping or redundancies, where you worry about that is dudes who are obsessed with playing one way, right? Where it's like you might have two two ball handlers or one-on-one scorers, right? And obviously only one person can do it at a time. And it's hard to convince somebody that you got to let the other guy do it maybe a bulk of the time. And then do some, this other thing that's going to contribute to wins for our team. Whereas with Scotty Barnes, I don't really worry about that. Even if he has yeah. some redundancies with Siakam, if you're like... Scotty, your job is going to be to set the hardest screens possible and roll as hard as you can and do some of this, um, you know, ancillary stuff. I don't think he's going to have a problem with that, which is why long term, like when I think about redundancies, I think about interchangeability. I don't see it as a redundancy. I see it as now I got two guys who are willing to do some of this dirty work, this knife work, basically. So, yeah, man, I'm I love Scotty Barnes. It's almost conventional in that they have two playmakers, and so Barnes can be the secondary playmaker. They're just giants. Yeah. Like it's almost like a Tom Hanks big thing going on where it's like he's huge, 
but he's like he could pass, you know. <laughs> it's just like he's was, a kid. Was that the plot inside. of that movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Raptors won the title in, in that series too. Um, but yeah, Barnes has, has been on another level. I, I think the problem is so. So I think that the debate comes down to Barnes drives offense in a way that Mobley doesn't. Right? Yes. He's mm-hmm. he's he's like he's the focal point of what they're doing a lot of times on the set, whereas Mobley is the recipient, he's the finisher. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, like I was watching Mobley the other night when he went out for 30 against the Clippers, and I'm like, this guy's really fucking good. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think when you factor in the defensive part of that, I still find it hard considering the entire body of work to go against Mobley at this point. Yeah, I think there's the conversation around Rookie of the Year, and I know we love adding a horse race element to all this, just as like, as an NBA culture, we have to make it a horse race at some point in the season. And Mobley's been so far ahead of everybody that it's like, okay, now we throw in all these names. What he's done defensively is special, like elite, mm-hmm. all yeah. defense consideration special. That's not something you see from rookies pretty much ever. And the numbers are still there and the performance is still there in a way that the conversation around rookie of the year would lead you to believe he's dropped off in some capacity. And I just don't see that remotely. And that's where, like, that's where I would be more compelled to look at Barnes or look at Cade is like, if Mobley had hit the rookie wall and regressed over the last two months and those guys were surging at the right time. And I mean, Cade is coming on like a, like a freight train. He's been unbelievable in the last month in particular. But we're still looking at two guys who had, or Scotty Barnes started strong. Cade, had an underwhelming first half of the season. Scotty Barnes has been good all throughout the year, but I think for most of it, solidly below where Mobley is, at least mm-hmm. in terms of overall impact. And so it's like, if he's tipping up now, and let's let's say for the sake of argument that Barnes is more valuable than, than Mobley has been over the last X weeks or one month or whatever, I'm just not sure that's enough to overwhelm yeah, the not. body of work for the season. Yeah, the Cavs are in the top five in the NBA in defense, and it's because of Mobley and Jared Allen. Like, this guy's a fucking rookie. Yep. You know, like, straight up. Like, that's that's insane. Rookies usually get taken to the woodshed. They have, it's there's so much to learn, particularly when you're a big man, as far as how these guards are trying to attack you and pick and roll, and how some of these bigs, when you're a young guy, can just muscle you. You don't have the physical mass and strength to stand up against grown men. We say that all the time, but like when you're 19 and somebody's 28, that's way older than you. That's way more physically mature than you. You know, and the fact that he's been able to not just hold his own, but anchor an elite unit in the NBA, you know, that's astonishing. Probably playing out of what is going to be his natural position going forward. Right. Like he basically made way for Allen and and tailored his game in order to what they wanted to do, rather than really like allow the Cavs to empower him as a lot of rookies tend to do, especially at the top of the draft. So I think you got to give him credit for that too. But it'll be interesting. I mean, there's what like 14 or so more games, one more month left. So we'll see. Looking like a looking like a tough beat though for Franz Wagner and Josh Giddy, who you know may have been hoping for that third place spot, but you know who knew? Kate Cunningham, very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> turns out. <laughs> um, quickly wanted to check in on winning time because I have two culture podcasters with me, and I just wanted someone <laughs> to talk about this with. Um, well, we'll save the debate about Jerry West, but just generally wise, how are you feeling about the series as you've now watched two episodes? So, look, I, I, I'm not crazy about the magic and his mother dynamic. I don't really care about what was happening in East Lansing before he got to L.A. Like, I'm not terribly interested in that. Um, I get that we have to sort of, the you know, magic. Set up dealing, magic as a yeah, tomcat. Yeah. Set up magic <laughs> as a tomcat. Set up magic who is struggling with an internal dialogue about the person his seven-day advance his mom raised him to be, and who he's become as this, you know, cad, if you will. However, (laughs) I just love them setting up, like, this is the genesis of the modern NBA. The NBA as we know it, you know, like, if, if you watch the NBA game from, like, 1975, it's not really recognizable when you consider what's being played in 2022. But when you watch the Lakers of this era, of course the game was way different back then, but you you see it. like It's like, oh, this is the game that we now know 
and love. And I love that the series is explaining to you, like, Dr. Buss put together, like, he held, he put this thing, that deal together with scotch tape and bubble gum um, <laughs> to keep that together. The sort of financial straits that the Lakers was in, the financial difficulties of the league, period. Like, this thing didn't have to continue on in the way that it did. I love that story that mm. it's telling, that this wasn't inevitable. This thing could have freaking gone up in flames, but for this guy who had a vision and, you know, the people that he empowered around him. I love that story that's being told. This other shit, Jerry West wasn't that mean at work. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Who cares? I mean, I have to say, I wasn't anticipating, and maybe I should have been on some level, knowing kind of what the tone of the show is going to be. I didn't think I was just going to have like a Jerry West sex scene plopped into my life, that but apparently great. that's where we <laughs> that's are now. Fantastic. But now that you have, you're, you're glad, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's doing the natural docudrama kind of thing, which is it's not going to be 100% fair to its subjects all the time. It's not going to be 100% accurate. There's going to be some shortcuts taken uh, in adapting this like journalistic effort, which is Jeff Perlman's book, into a drama for television. And the product that they've made, it's not perfect. It's not great. I think there's some adjustment as a viewer in terms of like the fourth wall breaking stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but it's fun. Like it's, it's an entertaining endeavor in a way that we just haven't seen this kind of tone. And I honestly never would have expected this kind of tone for an NBA or NBA adjacent product. Like what they're able to show in terms of the realistic, again, quote unquote realistic, but some of the behind-the-scenes chicanery of the NBA even then, that's kind of wild to see in a, in a product that has the Lakers logo on it. Yeah. It's somehow weird that the tone is the best and the worst part of the show because yeah. it's very much an Adam McKay production. Yeah. And that's like the best part of it, that it's bringing life to a lot of these scenes and parts that probably otherwise wouldn't. But then there's other parts where it's like, oh, it's maybe not in as... Uh, safe of hands. It's, it's it's been passed on to the showrunner. And it's not in McKay's, and I'm just like, this is a little over the top. There's probably a little too much fourth wall breaking and like text being thrown on the screen. I'm just like, all right, this is a little much. Um, but there's just something about it that's just like so captivating that you just keep watching. Uh, I, I the big thing that I and what I wanted to get into here is kind of Rob, what you were alluding to is like how faithful they really knew, do need to be to the text because it does seem like the portrayal of Wes in particular is ruffling some feathers. And I've kind of gone both ways on this, where at first I was like, oh, this is a little weird that they're taking so many liberties with this. Um, but then like, I read Mark Stein really take the show to task, and I was like, oh, this is kind of a lame take. I'm glad I didn't make that. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's also weird because McKay is, is kind of fallen into this period where like a lot of his other work is designed specifically to show people what's going on in the world to reveal some like broader truth about like what's happening. And then for them to portray the text in reality in such a stark way is almost like running counter to that. So it's like, it's almost like he wants to reveal truths about the world, but not like actually anything that is true. If that well, makes sense. You have that thing going on where Jerry West is a person who's lived a full and rich and complicated life. It, his that life is distilled in a particular way into this book and into other kind of biographical tales. And then that distillation is distilled into one and a half episodes of flashback backstory, like very uh, of our era. Oh, let me show you this person's childhood trauma and it will mm -hmm. allude to all of their future behaviors. That's where I kind of get into and understand the idea of this portrayal as being a little cartoonish but it's also a cartoonish show. Like, mm. this is a cartoonish representation of that. Like, again, Jerry Buss's shirt could not be more unbuttoned. You know, <laughs> like, I, I'm seeing all the way straight down to John me. C. Riley's navel, all right? Like, yeah. this is, know what product you're getting into, I, I would say, in terms of this stuff. And that's where it's crucial. It's like, if this becomes the defining record of who Jerry West was in the public eye, in the way that, for example, like the social network has kind of become a dominant narrative on Mark Zuckerberg's upbringing and the creation of Facebook, that could be an issue. That I, that might be a bit much, but as like a riff on a time and a thing and something that's like flashy and playing into the tone of what they're trying to create, I'm okay with it. You know, I, I wouldn't say the Jerry stuff 
Jerry West stuff has like sung on screen and been the best part of the show. But uh, but I don't really have like a huge objection. I think the hand wringing is overdone because you can interpret it as Jerry was mean to people at work on the show. Like, I, like I don't know. Like that just seems like such a fucking like unnecessary thing to care about in the characterization. To me, when you know when Varia talks about McKay's work trying to expose some you know, eternal truth about our lives in our society. Like, when I'm watching the show, I think sports fans tend to want to decouple partying, chasing women from greatness on the floor, on the court, on the playing field, as a coach, as a GM, as an owner. And when I watch the show, I think they're working in concert with one another. Like, the mm. reason why Magic wants to continue to be the greatest and wants to win over the city of L.A. is because he gets to have sex with seven girls at a party, right? Like, he knows that one thing is allowing the other to happen. Like It's, it's about so, the chase. It's, he's chasing that greatness because that greatness, it's, it doesn't just manifest itself in... Like, fans really think that players, all they should want is glory from fans and nothing else, and that should motivate how they play. It's like, no, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to be able to be intimate with the most beautiful women in the history of my life. I'm going to achieve status, um, be exalted as, like, some elite person in this society. And this city is, like, the perfect place to want to chase that in. And I think it's... It's, dri it's definitely driving Dr. Buss. It's driving Magic Johnson. It drives Norm Nixon. Like, the reason Norm Nixon has an ego about, I'm the point guard, I'm the this. Because, again, people know me in the city. People embrace me in the city. Like, those things work together. I think people think partying makes you a worse player. It's like, no. I'm a great player because I want to be the man at a lot of these parties. I do want to buy my mom a huge hot tub. I do want to do all of these things, right? And that's what the show, to me, is explaining. And, like, Jerry West, to me, is just a dude who's obsessed with winning, who's <laughs> obsessed with achievement, who's obsessed with this stuff in, in, like, in a way that's kind of toxic, which, again, shit that sports fans fucking love. They love people who are insane psychopath weirdos about winning, you know? Like, I don't know. I think there's multiple ways to view what the show was working with. I'm glad you brought up the LA of it all too, though, because for me, that's oh, one it. of the best part of it, I right? Love it. Like love it. seeing love it. Love 80s it. era Los Angeles and the forum and all this stuff. It's LA porn, like yes. not LA porn, but like yeah. porn about <laughs> LA. <laughs> I guess um, enjoy, you know, go, yeah. go, go off with everyone else in the town, enjoy the flashback. Yeah, no, but I, I do want to circle back one thing that Rob said quickly, like the social network, I think is, is a good thing to bring up here. Chris and Andy were talking about this on the watch and they were using the social network as a representation of how like art does not have to be beholden to the truth, right? That yeah. is a prime example where they had, they veered away from the text and they just created something unto itself. Yeah. But we are in this era now where, like, I think a lot of people are assuming that that is reality, right? And it was for Mark Zuckerberg, and it is now for the Lakers and Jerry Buss and, and Jerry Whose West. Fault and is all this. that? That we live well, in a I don't stupid know. society. At a certain point, I think, I wonder if you, if you have to acknowledge the fact that that is how people are interpreting what you're doing. And that, like, if that is the only thing that they're going to, do you feel a responsibility to be a little bit more closer to the actual truth rather than this higher truth than you're aspiring to. As, I think it's an as, interesting question for this an, time in 2020. As an artist yourself, Justin, when you're talking about, say, <laughs> Ben Simmons, is it important to acknowledge that he bought bicycles for poor kids in Australia when talking about <laughs> his horrible jump shot? Like, what, like, what are we doing here? Like, mm. is it everybody's job to give a full biographical accounting of every single fucking subject? That doesn't... That's not how this shit works. And if you think that's how it should, you're a fucking idiot. I'm sorry. Like, that's not what we do. We don't talk about... Like, when people write a book about Richard Nixon and they concentrate on what he did as a president, and, and somebody says, well, back in the days, he did blah, 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 and this was not a full thing of Richard Nixon. It's like, that's not how you get treated as prominent figures in society. 
You're not some person being plucked from obscurity, you know, working in a fucking factory and, and people are just killing you in um in some artistic depiction. Like, you're so when Jerry I write West. my big Waz book, take I can paint you how. You can take me down, <laughs> Justin. You can take me down. It's fine. If I'm worthy, if you could sell a fucking book based on my life, and you put the work in writing it for me, take my ass down. As long These as are the, the most exalted yeah. people in our fucking society. I'm supposed to cry for Jerry West? Depiction on a fucking TV show? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I will say, if you want the truth, like, read the book. Read yeah, a, read, read the, a single part. book. That any, part. Any book. That um, part. And to the extent that, like, the fictionalizations that are happening in this show, to me, are small potatoes compared to Let's say some of the liberties taken in like The Last Dance, for example. When you present mm. something as documentary, as this is fact, this is a, like this is on the, on the ground accounting of what happened versus again John C. Riley talking into the camera as he comes <laughs> out of the Playboy Mansion. You probably shouldn't take that stuff 100% at face value. That that is a viewer issue, not a text issue. Mm. Yeah, just just to be clear, I probably take more umbrage to Jerry Buss being the white knight than I do with uh, Jerry West's portrayal. But speaking of books, like if you do read Jerry West's book, it does get pretty dark in there. So sure. uh, maybe maybe put that at the top of the list. Um, all right, maybe we'll check back on the show later on. This is technically within our purview. Yeah, right? of course it is. How yeah. it is. All right, we have a podcast. We can talk about <laughs> stuff. <laughs> all right, um, that's it for us this week. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Thank you to Isaiah Blakely on production. Uh, We will see you then.